Welcome to the SAS Mining Podcast. At SAS Mining, we are bringing you into conversations with today's industry leaders in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Our goal with this podcast is to improve the understanding and adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrency by giving you an insider's look at what's being built and informed predictions on what the future holds. Yael Tamar is the CMO and partner at SolidBlock, a new fundraising vehicle offering a compliant global platform for the issuance and trade of digital securities backed by real estate and other assets. Yael is a financial strategist, speaker, advisor, and mentor with over a decade of experience, as well as a regional co-chair at the Foundation for International Blockchain Real Estate Expertise. Welcome to the podcast, Yael. Thanks, William. Thank you for having me. Of course. I've been really excited for this conversation. All the stuff that you guys have been doing with SolidBlock is incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about just the journey of what starting SolidBlock was actually like and then moving forward to where it is today? Sure. So, SolidBlock started in 2018 when we had you know, an era of uh, kind of this industry that gave a lot of hope and failed. And I'm talking about the ICOs. Um, You know, everybody uh, thought this was the way that companies are going to raise money. And uh, this was the way that, you know, uh, anybody with a dream um, and a community could monetize the community and create something really cool. So uh, unfortunately, there was no delivery, no execution, and lack of planning for the time when regulators are going to get a gist of what's happening. So uh, at that time, you know, we uh, uh, understood that we need to work with the industry, with the regulators, with the financial institutions, and, and really solve, uh, solve a real need, right? Um, and utilize, you know, blockchain is going to be utilized for raising funds. It's going to be through um, compliant channels and the security. Uh, however, you know, companies that are not able to raise funds through traditional methods of VCs or, uh, you know, uh, private equity and so on and so forth, are probably not going to be able to use funds in any way, you know. So we have to think about assets that are really you know, struggling and are highly liquid um, that are easy to evaluate and are easy to, uh, uh, to, to really, uh, you know, appraise and understand. And, 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 and these assets are real estate, commodities, uh, you know, energy, uh, anything that relates to, let's say, like a real world asset. So that's basically us leading, you know, our background leading up to understanding the potential and, and, uh, and listing it on our LinkedIn profile, right? My, my co-founder, Yuval, um, you know, he basically got into the STOs in, in 2018. And uh, lo and behold, uh, he got a contact from the Aspen uh, St. Regis Hotel, which was tokenizing in 2018. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the quickly, the, the, this, this deal closed fairly quickly. And uh, SolidBlock was creating a tech platform for that deal. And I'll explain in detail a little bit about that deal. Now, very quickly about our personal backgrounds. Uh, Both Yuval and I have been dreaming of uh, being investors, specifically real real estate investors for many years. I have a finance background. I've been helping other people invest money with uh, private equity, um, you know, kinds of accelerators, startups. uh, pension funds, IPOs, you know, I worked on, on a lot of different financial products and yet wasn't able to reach real estate deals, you know, uh, um, having, you know, all these challenges in, in becoming an investor. Uh, same, same, same for my partner, Yuval, who's been in IT, but, you know, has always been interested in finance. So we kind of uh, went on solving our personal uh, challenge there with real estate. And um, after we'd done the Aspen deal, which raised $18 million on our, on our platform, um, and uh, for the renovation of the property and issued the, the first security token for a commercial asset, we went on to develop uh, the platform and uh, you know, do several more projects and uh, uh, kind of create this new um, platform that's going to be a bridge and a window into DeFi, decentralized finance, and uh, a new wave of digital structured products. 
Yeah, well, congrats with that. And because I do remember that whole, it, it was almost like what everyone was talking about. Everyone was talking about the possibility of tokenization and how security tokens were going to change the world. And I think that the concept behind security tokens is really transformative when you have an understanding of how illiquid some of these assets really are. And when you understand how this liquidity premium could really change who can invest in what and how fluid that process is. But I know that we'll, we'll dive into all of that. So uh, to, to maybe to start, could you talk a little bit about tokenization and how that works for security tokens? Absolutely. Tokenization is a function or a combination of two things, uh, digitization and securitization. So let's start actually with securitization. Securitization is nothing new. Anybody from the financial industry understands that you can take a, any asset and, and uh, break it down into parts, right? So you create an SPV, a special purpose vehicle, a corporation, uh, which holds the asset. You break it down to parts and you sell them to investors. So these parts are called securities and they come in two types, equity or debt. Equity means that you're actually holding a piece of the asset and debt means that you are lending money to the owner of the asset to uh, improve the business in some way and then you're going to be paid interest and then you're going to be paid you know the whole uh, uh, bond uh, back at a certain time right so uh, that's uh, that's nothing new that's been done for many many years right decades now what what happened to the industry in 2012 was the jobs act the jobs act basically said that we can uh, now, investors can, can buy these securities and actually trade them. So accredited investors can, uh, uh, who bought securities uh, can trade them on what's called an ATS, Automated Trading System, uh, which is a special uh, license for a broker dealer. And uh, you don't have to uh, go to, a, uh, to a, an exchange. You don't have to go to a licensed exchange like NASDAQ and, or uh, New York Stock Exchange, for example. You can find an ATS like T0 uh, and, and uh, trade your product there. So that's one thing that happened. Uh, the second thing that happened around the same time from 2010 was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency that was on the platform uh, of, of blockchain, right? So essentially blockchain is a, is a, a decentralized ledger technology that enables transfers of assets, right? Uh, assets or information in an immutable decentralized manner. Uh, and that created a revolution. The combination of those things, the Jobs Act of 2012, that enabled us to, to compliantly trade private products and the technology that allows you to, to trade private, private products, they came together, right? And created um, uh, tokenization essentially. So, uh, so uh, to you know, to make a long story short, uh, when we're tokenizing an asset, we're issuing a security. But the security is not a paper security. Your holding in a company when you invest is not sitting in some Excel database, but instead it's sitting on the blockchain. Blockchain provides a, a cap table, a secure and immutable cap table. That, that basically keeps track of the investors coming in and out of the asset when they're being traded. So that's what tokenization is. And the benefits are obvious. You can uh, manage many more investors, thereby you lower the investment thresholds. When you invest in real estate, usually you need hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, if you wanna hold an asset like, like Aspen, like St. Regis, nobody could invest in a hotel. Uh, no private investors could invest in, in a hotel of that size until that deal. So that's number one. Number two, liquidity, of course. Nobody was able to trade pieces of hotels yet, you know, and yet uh, last week it was listed on T0 and, and uh, over 150, 200 people have traded the assets so far. And, uh, and of course, now you can also do global transactions, right? You're opening the market up to a lot more people. Yeah, well said. That really summed everything up uh, really well. And comparing... Yeah. Comparing utility tokens to security tokens, what you just outlined was how a security token functions. Right. Uh, is there anything that you'd want to just speak about regarding the difference between a utility token and a security token? So utility token really is, a, um, is using a Kickstarter model to raise funds for future products that communities want. 
that that's what it was supposed to be about and i think that they do have um their place and uh, i personally as an economist was super excited about about these tokens because it really enables a lot of different models and, and i think we're still going to see them in, in payments and things like you know uh, for example rent payments or uh, anything that that motivate motivates users to to do certain behaviors right if you you want your tenants, for example, to um, to to somehow uh, use the space in the, in the way you want, right? Uh, say uh, save the space or clean the space where they live. You can can encourage them with the utility tokens, for example, and and then they can use them to buy certain services or convert them to security tokens at some point, right? So they can own the asset. So this is an example of of a utility token. And, and uh, the problem with utility tokens was that they were used for fundraising. They probably should never be used for fundraising for equity companies. Uh, they could be successfully used, like I said, in the Kickstarter model, right? Uh, any, any product that's out there that's being produced, physical product uh, that, that you're supposed to get at the end of the day in, in the mail, uh, or you know that, that would be a good example of utility token. Uh, if you're fundraising utility token, with the goal of profiting from uh, from that raise, right? Anybody who's investing in it is expecting to uh, benefit from the value increase of utility token. That doesn't pass what's called the Dewey test, and that automatically makes the token a security token. So it's no, it's not compliant. So I wouldn't advise anybody to raise money from utility tokens anymore. But I would advise technologists to you know to look into different uh, uh, use cases of utility tokens. Yeah, definitely. Because that's one of the things that people talk about tokenization. And there is that clear difference when we were seeing that huge boom and bust of the tokens on the ICOs, initial coin offerings in 2017. That was really surrounding exactly what you said. These companies that were having a token represent access to a particular service, but they were using the token as a fundraising vehicle. And that's why the SEC really came in and cracked down. Yeah, good for them too, you know, um, good for them too. And also they were right. If you look at all the companies that raised, almost none of them came up with uh, any any significant products, right? There's really, in count on the number of my, of uh, uh, the fingers of my hand, the companies that really created anything. And that, those were mainly exchanges and some of them are really successful or maybe some deep tech platforms. Uh, there are no, obviously, there's no consumer apps that, that are still around. And, um, and, and yeah, 99% of these companies, you know, don't even have any code on, on GitHub, um, which is a platform where, where companies list um, their code uh, on open source. So, so, yeah, so they were right, you know. So uh, it's, uh, uh, it, was all, it was all a scam. <laughs> but yeah. unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate. Once you give a loophole to, you know, to the industry, and it's happened before with many things, blockchain is no exception. You know, uh, um, any new technology like the internet, the internet is the biggest, you know, community of scammers you can, you can find, obviously. You know, how many emails did you get from a Nigerian prince this month? So, you know, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be using the internet. Many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's also one of those things where, I mean, you brought up the example of the internet. It, there, it's not like we're going to not utilize the internet or we should start banning the internet because there are bad people and scammers that use it. Just how with blockchain, for example, you guys come up with a great use case for blockchain technology. There's value to be used, seen in that. And then there are certain people that are still talking about it as if we're in like 2012, 2013 and talking about some of the scams that are happening. I think yeah. good people are going to build good things and do amazing things with the technology. And then bad people are always going to be bad doing certain things in whatever technology they're able to get their hands on. So, yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, most banks out there, I think probably the majority of the banks now are using blockchain for um, transfers, right? Especially international transfers and, uh, and on the other end, there's people who say, you know, uh, we shouldn't use 5G. So um, there, there's, there's all kinds of, uh, there, there are all kinds of people out there. I, and, and the good thing is that in business, you always kind of evaluate opportunity um, against the, uh, you know, against many different 
um, criteria. And, uh, you know, blockchain is just a technology. It's just the technology that happens to be the best technology for doing any sort of transactions, um, you know, securely. And uh, the internet, you know, right now is obviously used by everybody and anybody, and you can't uh, think about any applications except maybe NASA or, or CIA, where maybe they have something else that we don't know about. Uh, so I think blockchain is going to be as wide, widespread as, uh, as the internet in a few years. Yeah. And I also love the way that you were talking about the potential future of some of these tokens. I mean, you gave the example of utility tokens being used potentially for rent in the future. Is that something yeah. that you're, you've seen a company that's working on that? Or is that just something that you came up with the idea, just seeing the potential of using blockchain? I've seen quite a few companies working on that, actually. Uh, I don't know which ones have survived, but there, there are some non-blockchain applications as well that are tackling um, tackling this issue. And uh, in terms of rent in general, it's super outdated in the U.S. and many other countries where you're still operating with checks, for example, and you can't evict tenants. Um, they don't pay. There's all kinds of protections. So you could use smart contracts and blockchain to really sort that out. I think it's going to take quite a bit of time for consumer applications like that to happen. And in some of our projects, we're, we're actually we're discussing uh, implementing utility tokens we're, uh, for, the, for the rental payment and uh, incentivizing tenants. Um, so, you know, you may see that in our projects in the future. Uh, we're working uh, with a few projects in the affordable uh, home space. Um, so it's kind of a, a place that's close to my heart. And uh, I think that's some, a place where we can make a lot of difference. Um, so, I, so I think in, specifically in those projects, it could be uh, of really good use where you know, tenants care and they would be you know, excited to, to be even a part of, a part of something, uh, you know, a shareholder in, in a space they, where they live and uh, care about it much more. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that, I also wanted to dive into depth on uh, surrounding security tokens. We could also run the thought experiment for utility tokens if we want afterwards. But let's say I'm, I want to tokenize equity in our company, right? So for example, yeah. SAS mining, if we wanted to go about tokenizing equity, how would we go about doing that through solid block? What, what's the step-by-step -step process of what that would look like from our end and what you guys would be doing behind the scenes. So for you to tokenize uh, your company, your equity, we would create an SPV, always create another entity that, that then will have the right to buy a part of your company. We'd establish a valuation, you know, maybe we'll go to Ernst & Young or some other a company that will establish the valuation. And uh, that's why, by the way, it's not easy to do this for companies that are early stage where evaluation is really unclear. Um, so uh, we, would do, we, we would do that. And then um, we would have to create like what's called a PPM, private placement memorandum. It's a legal document, it's kind of like a white paper, but with a very clear format. And, um, and that P with that PPM, we would, we would notify the SCC, we're doing the offering. We would go and register what's called the Reg D 506C exemption offering. And uh, after that, we're able to, uh, you as the issuer uh, are able to go and market um, this offering in an unlimited way. That, that's, that's what I talked about with the Jobs Act. You can go out and market and, but you can only raise from accredited investors. You can also only market to accredited investors. That's why you usually do that through a broker dealer um, that has access to accredited investors. And um, you would, uh, uh, every time you take money, your responsibility, it is your responsibility to check whether these investors are accredited. And I'll go into the definition of accredited investor in a minute. You also have to check KYC and AML on, of every investor. Um, and because the, if the SEC go, goes after you at the end of the day, you have to have everything documented. And that's why I would advise to use third parties uh, to do that. Now, uh, third parties that have KYC AML accreditation uh, automated and you know licensed 
Uh, so we're using North Capital. It's our partner on the compliance side. It's a, it's a broker dealer and partner on the compliance side. Now you could use a, a, obviously a platform like SolidBlocks. You don't have to create everything from scratch. Uh, all the <laughs> Sounds like a lot if you tried to do it on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, we have this, the expertise because we've done this before, and it, I would not advise somebody to just uh, uh, you know go and repeat this process. We've done this before with incredible legal teams with uh, you know a crazy amount of resources. Think about the Marriotts, St. Regis uh, Hotel, you know. Uh, so we were lucky in that sense that we didn't, you know, uh, that we started with a project of that size. So we were able to learn from the best, right? So uh, compliance and taxation and all of that. Um, so then once you offer it to investors and investors agree to, to transfer the funds, uh, you would again use a financial institution, an escrow agent to hold the funds for you because you're not able to use these funds until you reach what's called a soft cap. Soft cap is the minimum amount of investment that you need to raise to move forward with this project. And then you have a hard cap, which may be higher than the soft cap. You know, it's a, a, what, I, a, what I would like to have. So once you reach the soft cap, you're able to take the money out of the escrow and they distribute the security tokens to investors. And that, you know, obviously the distribution that happens digitally through a platform like SolidBlock, ideally providing a custody for these tokens so that, that the investors don't have to deal with wallets and stuff like that. So the platform creates a wallet every time an investor is onboarded and that they don't even know that they have a wallet. They don't have to have a key to the wallet. Uh, you know, the, the, it's secure secure with, uh, with, with a platform. And then Within, um, uh, unfortunately in the US, there is a one year lockup between the issuance and the trade. So investors are gonna have to wait for one year to start trading. At that point, they can trade over the counter on platforms like SolidBlock, or um, uh, these tokens are likely going to be listed on one of the exchanges like T0, and, um, and uh, then they'll be able to, to trade on the exchange. And okay. do the tokens do, as a company, do you have to pay to get listed on one of these exchanges like T0 or any other type yes. of security token exchange? Yes, absolutely. You definitely have to be paid to, to get listed and then you have, you know, some maintenance fees uh, throughout or, or sometimes minimum trading thresholds. I think that the industry is going to improve tremendously and then you're going to have a lot of players. So it's going to become competitive and market makers and underwriters. So I expect this industry to blow up and not as fast as they predicted initially. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I mean, in 2018 or 2019, the predictions were, were you know, that the, there's gonna be at least, uh, I think in 2019, maybe $10 billion tokenized, which wasn't, I mean, it wasn't that outrageous. I mean, in reality, there were around maybe one to 2 billion, right? So they, 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 they were mistaken by about a 10, right? So, uh, or, or times 10. Um, and the reason why, and still it wasn't so much, right? The ICO industry was, was um, higher, but that's due to like two huge projects that brought in 4 billion. Um, so, you, you know, one to 2 billion is not so bad for the first year in any case, but really the regulation has just caught up with itself. Like in the US, thankfully we had the regulation ready. In Europe, they just came out with the regulation last year, you know, some clarity of what's legal and what's not. <clears throat> in Europe, also crowdfunding is much more advanced than in the US. In, in the US, they've had a plan to increase the crowdfunding threshold from 1 million to 5 million for a while. And, and also um, now the current SEC commissioner who I truly admire and love, like she um, has uh, plans to improve or to change the definition of the accredited investor. And I wanted to touch up on that. So uh, the government basically says that you can only invest in these highly risky securities if you, if you're, if you, if you earn a certain uh, amount of income, which is uh, I think $250,000 per individual and maybe $300,000 per family for the past two consecutive years or if you earn a certain, if you have a certain uh, amount uh, of assets other than your primary residence and, uh, and that's a few million. Um, so, so that's very interesting because you can also go to a casino 
and then blow your money there. And, and you can also go to a P2P lender. And, and as we know, that's a huge industry and payday loans and all of that. And that's okay, right? And the minute it comes to- That is like crazy when you put it like that. That really is. I never even thought about it like that, but just stacking them up side by side, that it's so weird that that law exists. I know, right? So a lot of people are, you know, who are into conspiracy theories are saying that, okay, so the government's trying to limit us from, uh, from really getting to the products that the rich are investing in. And we're, you know, um, we're left with mutual funds and pension funds and other like low performing assets. Um, so in this case, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that it's still a, a, a goal of the government to protect residents and citizens because I think that in the absence of such a law, we'd see what was happening with the ICOs, right? People taking advantage of somebody and obviously the SEC or the government doesn't have the capacity to do uh, so much legal work and, and check, you know, uh, and, and so much enforcing, right? So um, that's why they said, okay, go to credit investors. They're they're more sophisticated. They can they can smell, you know, they they, they can they can smell uh, uh, the projects that are not they're not going to perform. Um, so what the SEC is trying to do right now, SEC is a Securities Exchange Commission that governs the uh, uh, all the all the compliance regulations. Uh, they're trying to update the, the rule for credit investors. So anybody who passed the test like a Series 7 obviously understands what they're doing in finance. And, and so now they, they, they will be able to, to invest um, as accredited investors. And I think that's fantastic because it encourages financial education and, and, and will, will help, help us all. And because that's the first thing that, that, that people need to do is, is really get financial education. And that's why it was crazy to me because I've been working in the finance industry for, you know, several decades, and I I couldn't invest in in these assets. <laughs> um, so that's that's pretty insane, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, because me specifically, I was just blowing all my money on on startups and 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 creating things and investing and <laughs> in, and in creating technologies for, for many many years. Um, so. Um, that, that's basically where we stand with, uh, with that, with what you would have to do as a company. Now, the, we, we, it, it would be, it would make us discuss, you know, whether it makes sense for you guys to do it. Because, uh, you know, a liquidity premium is fantastic, but by being um, uh, an, a, a company, you need to generate sufficient amount of transparency for people to be trading your asset, right? With real estate, you have milestones. You have you know, renovation finished, a new tenant, and so on and so forth. So, so I, we we're, we're able to trade. Uh, what I like about the mining industry specifically is the equipment, and the fact that it's tangible in a way, right? So, uh, and also there's electricity costs, and like let's say a mining company would uh, is starting operations, and then in a specific country, you know, then you have you have some interesting things happening. And you have really, uh, as far as the valuation is concerned, if you're dealing, if your company is dealing with hardware specifically, I think, I think actually tokenization could be uh, a great path uh, for, for such a company. Yeah, well, it's, it caught my attention initially. I started looking into it, but this was back when the, our, I would say the infrastructure that was available to a company that was evaluating a security token offering was in its earlier stages. So it, it just seemed kind of difficult from a token management perspective and just keeping everything straight. I just thought it would probably be easier to just go through the yeah. traditional fundraising route and then maybe wait a few years and the company would grow and then the overall space would grow. And then yeah. it would be a decision of going IPO or going uh, for po potentially a security token offering, something like that. Right. So, so the good thing about the security token space is that you don't have heavy, heavy reporting requirement like you do with the IPO. You really have to report to your investors on, you know, the usual financial reports, audited financial reports. Uh, from our companies, from our clients, we're asking for a quarterly report on evaluating all of your, all of your assets. And, uh, and then you also update your investors on like a daily or weekly basis, whatever you want, like if anything special happens. Um, so so that, that's basically it. There's not much 
in terms of a requirement. Um, so, you know, I think be, you being in this industry uh, is, is actually a, a really good pathway to go out and invest um, and, and not invest, but, but to create also partnerships. You know, you can, you can, you can have partners buy into the security token and, uh, and also you can finance, uh, you, maybe you don't have to do a raise for your company's equity, but you can finance new operations. And that's basically what they were trying to do with utility tokens initially. But if you, let's say you want to expand to a new market and, and buy equipment there, um, you can, you know, you can, we can raise funds with security tokens. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's and fascinating. Then the investors, yeah. yeah. And then the, and then you can actually ask for the partners, the local partners that you have in that country uh, to buy in these partners to buy in into the security it's gonna it's actually a much easier structure than having them buy into an actual spv and hold an actual spv and for them having this liquidity premium is fantastic yeah so you're you think that it's it's actually easier for them to buy into a tokenized spv rather than go and fund a traditional uh go go a traditional funding path through an spv for for what reasons again like what would those main reasons be like one you mentioned yeah. the liquidity premium yeah also global raise right so yeah um even now when let's say you have let's say you want to expand your mining business into russia and uh and then you have a partner in switzerland that wants to co-invest in that business with you so you would probably create some sort of an SPV in the Cayman that's going to hold a company in Russia that was actually going to hold the business. So, so you're going to have a lot of lawyers here. Um, in, in any case, uh, when, you, when, when you create this, this security token, and let's say you want to have now one investor. If you have one investor, you probably are not going to tokenize. But let's say that you have a lot of people who are interested in, in then uh, you know, using this platform for mining, right? So mining com other companies uh, that are using this, you can ask them to buy in. And then, you know, they don't know anything about legal stuff and how to structure things and taxes and so on and so forth. So it's easier for them to buy securities. So, and also the securities are liquid. So as soon as they go up in value, they can, they can sell. So they don't yeah, necessarily want to- actually very, very- and a very interesting point, particularly for miners, because offloading hardware and selling hardware can be a pain, uh, can just be a huge pain, you know? So having that ability to sell that equity easily on a tradable platform through a security token is something that I think would be really useful for miners. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think the miners are definitely going to, you know, this is a new model also for, for anybody involved in mining. I mean, we can, we can create something interesting. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I just brainstorming here, <laughs> but yeah. if we actually had a minute to sit down and think it through, imagine what we could come up with. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been thinking about this for like a little while now. Um, Cause also another thing that I, that just, I'm not sure. I want to get your opinion on this and see if this is something that you think would actually work. Um, if someone were to raise a mining fund that was specific to invest in different mining projects and then just tokenize the fund through some company that is, yeah. you know, created in the Caymans, and then you're able to do a global raise in a compliant way through yeah, that absolutely. entity, that's something that that's possible. That is the best use case actually, right? So yeah. you have miners anywhere, everywhere, right? And uh, uh, the only caveat here is that every jurisdiction has its own requirements, right? So uh, with SolidBlock, we have partners almost anywhere that, that allow you to do compliant raise. If these investors are not accredited investors, uh, a lot of them will be because they probably, you know, have uh, have some, this mining business, right? They can they can use a business also, uh, if not an individual. But if they're not accredited, we can still find a way to activate our crowdfunding partners and and have them invest. So we'll find a way for them to invest. But it definitely the fund fundraising costs money, right? So we're trying to minimize these expenses. But uh, um, 
you know, it's going to take us some time to create kind of this global efficient vehicle. Um, so I said I would focus on three or four jurisdictions. Let's say not all 180 countries in the world, but let's say we'll focus on the EU because that's that's a great EU is a great jurisdiction because a lot of people, a lot of countries, but yet passportable laws. It's perfect. Uh, unfortunately, the UK came out and it's, it's so much uncertainty there. Um, so, so we would look at the EU, maybe the United States, um, Mexico, maybe, or maybe some country in, in South America. Um, and uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, let's say. China, unfortunately, it's illegal to to raise money with security tokens in China. Really? I did not yes. know that. Yes. So, but thankfully, most of the Chinese investors have their money somewhere in Singapore, Hong Kong, so, um, and have advice. Okay, this is nothing new, right? It's not, it's not, not only for the security token industry, and they have uh, advisors, uh, financial advisors that are acting on their behalf. So, so there's a loophole in that way. And how long are these fund is the full process where if someone goes and they say, I want to, I want to, for example, do that fund idea or do some other tokenization of, of some sort of asset. How long is that process on average from start to finish? So you probably need around two months to create this PPM private placement memorandum, which is really like a business plan. So there's a lot of thought put into it. Although if you come to me with a ready, ready business plan, we'll, it'll take us a week or two con to convert it into a PPM. Um, you know, so, so then we'll have to do some technical onboarding uh, and strategizing around where, we, where we're gonna raise. Um, and then depending on whether or not you have distribution partners, right? So if we, if we, if we need to also find networks or distribution partners, um, that's the most important thing. Like the key in every project is, of course, the marketing. If you, uh, if you have this community, so it's the same thing as, as with the ICO. If you have a community that trusts you and your ability to make money, uh, they're going to jump on this opportunity. Then I would say SEO is a fantastic, fantastic tool for you, right? So if you do not have such community, it's not a panacea. It's not a, it's not a, some, it's not a magic pill. You can't, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, generate so much interest just by having an, an STO. So uh, suppose that you have this network and a community. Um, it'll take around two months to set up, maybe less, and then uh, it will take another few months to raise, right? Depending on how how uh, connected you are. Wow. That is very interesting. So this is something that if a company wants to do, they like the overall amount of time that it takes really isn't, that's almost like a normal fundraise uh, pretty yeah. much going from nothing to actually getting the capital in the door. Yeah. How much does it cost to get started with something like this? Is, is it high upfront costs or is it something where after the raise is done, a portion of the capital raised is then distributed to the parties that helped with raising that capital. Like, where's the money, I guess. Yeah. Coming out. <laughs> so I recommend to raise, I recommend to raise at least $5 million. Um, so the high upfront costs um, are generally concerning the legal part, right? Cause we have to do the PPM and you know, legal is never cheap. And for good reason, right? Because you want to be compliant and you don't want to go to jail. So um, there is a, a cost to the legal, there are legal fees like thirty to $50,000. And um, the technical fees are, are fairly low. And, uh, you know, a few, another uh, ten dollars to $20,000, let's say. And, you know, the, and, and then basically the rest is marketing. If you have your, your network set up and everything is great, then you don't need to necessarily pay the broker dealers, which also take upfront fees. Um, and then you can go into straight into distribution and, you know, uh, raise uh, without having to invest a lot of money, which is really the key, right? It's really the key. If you don't have such networks, then you're going to have to spend uh, a lot more money on, on distribution. Okay. 
Yeah, so there's also compliance fees, but usually those are taken from and most of them are taken from the raise itself. Every investor has to undergo KYC, AML, accreditation, so on. There's some escrow uh, escrow agency fees as well, you know, another ten, twenty thousand dollars. So we're looking at under one hundred thousand dollars basically, um, if you're savvy with your network. And then are there success fees that the broker dealers are taking after the capital comes yeah. in the door? So you'd want like assuming that you come to the table with everything, you can expect it under a hundred K. And then aside from that, whatever the success fee is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're engaging the broker dealers to distribute, then yes, you're expecting to pay five to 7% in the success fee. If you're engaging the broker dealer just to provide compliance, then you're not paying uh, any success fee. You're just paying, you know, uh, some sort of a set fee per, um, per investor. Right. So then you have a, companies like SolidBlock, where we also have a very small origination fee, um, which is, you know, similar to a transaction fee that you would incur with like credit card or PayPal or something like that. Yeah. And this next question, I, it really does end up depending on the quality of the companies that are going and trying to raise the capital. But if you were to just ballpark the success rate of companies that have attempted these raises and met that soft cap. So maybe not reaching the full amount, but yeah. made it to their soft cap and been able to keep the money and move forward with the project. Uh, what would you estimate that number is around? So actually the thing is that we don't hear about failed projects so much um, in this industry yet. Right. So uh, most of the projects that I've seen have succeeded in raising 20 to $50 million, those are like funds or real estate assets. I've seen some smaller raises, three to 5 million on different platforms. So I've seen a lot of successes here and I'm sure there've been failures, but we haven't heard about them so much. And there was one public failure of a WeWork asset about a year ago. And uh, it's been attributed to the fact that we that WeWork was going down in general. So they kind of pulled it, pulled it at the last minute. So, you know, but so far I haven't seen a lot of failed projects because a lot of because companies are not willing to undergo through all of this trouble and invest so much money and so much effort into the legal um, process without having you know thought through distribution partners, for example. So uh, yeah. so so that's why I think that in this case, you know, it's a very serious offering, serious companies, and I think just doing an STO is also signaling. Uh, that the company and the venture is serious. Yeah, so I guess you haven't seen many early stage companies attempt a security token or anything like that. These are companies that have their funding partners. They, if they wanted, could go raise the capital fairly easily through traditional routes, but for whatever reason, or I guess for all the reasons that we spoke about earlier, how security <laughs> tokens can be really useful, yeah. they decided to go and try and do a security token offering. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So like, for example, why haven't we done an STO for solid block, for example, right? So we're raising our seed round right now in a traditional equity way. So you could ask, why are you not using your own, your own product? And, and the answer is that, you know, we think that the security token, first of all, should be backed by some sort of a real world asset. You know, either you have, you're a, maybe a pharmaceutical company or you, you hold some patents uh, that are ready to go that you can maybe even sell to other people, right? Sellable, sellable IP um, or commodities or equipment, right? All of that warrants security tokens. Like once solid block reaches uh, series B or C or, or beyond, and we have contracts that you can quantify, you know, relationships and let's say uh, uh, annual recurrent revenue of, of uh, some sizable amount, then we'll be ready to tokenize ourselves, right? So uh, when, when, when clients come to us, 99% of the clients that come to us, we turn away because we don't think this is a good fit for them. And we, we don't want to have these failed projects, even if they have the money to do it. Wow. That actually is very good to hear. Cause I mean, it would be easy for you guys to just take the extra clients, try and build it up, but you're trying to build, it seems like a reputation where, when you get asked that question that I just asked you, you can say, yeah, I'm They're, they're all complete in this, at least the soft cap, like maybe, maybe yeah. more. I'm, 
I'm not sure what those exact stats are, but like industry wide, but if you're willing to turn away a lot of those clients that you don't think would be able to raise the capital, then I think that that's, that's a smart long-term play. Thank you. Yeah. We've learned a lot. <laughs> We've learned a lot. I personally worked with ICOs actually, um, you know, back in 2018 when I uh, was enamored with the industry as well, but I did work with some really good ones that are still alive and, and working and working really hard and successful. So, so that's good news. And I, I, you know, I worked with some that did reach the soft cap, didn't deliver uh, very few. I don't think I've actually worked with somebody who tried and didn't, didn't reach a soft cap, which, which was, maybe a good uh, due diligence on my part. Um, but, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen and I've heard about that happen. And, and, you know, we all learn from that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it still kind of blows my mind how much money was raised during that time. And people keep pointing towards regulations. I think that this is the other side of it where you want a, like accredited investor laws to protect the people uh, who might just go and invest in these products that and companies that are not going to succeed. Yeah. I guess my, my question is, do you think that the SEC should be doing anything else aside from adding those series level courses for accreditation? Or do you think that it would kind of reached a, a sweet spot? I guess if, if you could change any part of the regulation, would you, or is there anything that you would advise that they try and do? That is a great question, and I haven't asked myself. You know, what I, I I try not to ask myself too many questions because then I have way too many ideas. <laughs> um, but we actually are part of the organization called the Digital Chamber of Commerce, and uh, they are the lobby group that goes and has you know weekly or daily I don't know talks with the regulators, uh, working it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, what I would do in general, I would actually utilize much more technology in trying to help people differentiate good projects with bad projects. I would en enhance the capabilities of the SEC to provide information. I'll give you an example. You know, I had uh, a lot of people calling me trying to sell me uh, products to invest in lately, right? So, so then I, what I usually do is I try to have a conversation with them. I don't hang up on them. I get their information, I get their company name and number and ask them to email me all of their information and licenses. At that point, I have their name, you know, and I Google it with the word scam next to it. And usually something comes out, but what comes out is not an SEC website, it becomes some sort of a forum where people were looking for whether or not this product is a scam, but they sound so credible. You know, you're ready to send five, 10, $20,000 to these people, right? So. Uh, you know, and they usually use a name of a company that actually exists, but they change it a little bit, you know, instead of a .com, they do .net, something like that, right? So, so then I tried reporting them to the SEC, which got me nowhere, you know, uh, obviously they, they, they emailed back saying, thank you, you know, um, thank you, but we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you should do your own due diligence and, and thank you very much. So there, there's really no... Uh, like if I were them, I would create this like reporting culture, you know, use the uh, uh, like use the knowledge of the of the system and, and actually educate people much more about financial products instead of limiting them uh, point blank from from investing. So there's many things that I would do uh, in, from from the technology standpoint. Definitely the move of the SEC to improve their accredited investor uh, is a great one. They're, they're increasing the crowdfunding threshold to 5 million. I think they should increase it higher. I think 20 million would be better. Uh, and also I hope that they increase the threshold of how much an investor can put in these products. And also they should maybe create an asset class that's in between the crowdfunding and the in the 506C. Um, actually there is one, I should say. There is uh, something that's called Reg A plus exemption where you can raise money from uh, from retail investors for up to $75 million. And also uh, the threshold is, is, is not as low as crowdfunding for individual investor, but that actually is almost as, you know, you, you almost have to write a full prospectus and it's very close to being an IPO. Um, so they should keep working on these exemptions and these standards. And I think they are doing a good job. They're doing a good job. Um, hopefully uh, we'll see a lot of changes soon. 
Yeah. I mean, it, it's just hard to wrap your head around all these different op- options. Like been talking a lot about reg D, but then there's is reg a, uh, the IPO and then reg a plus is that exemption up to 75 no, million. They're both exemptions. There's a slight difference between oh, reg yeah, a and yeah, reg yeah. a plus. Uh, but yeah, they're not IPO. Like, you know, actually IPO is a really interesting concept because with an IPO, you usually have an underwriter uh, that comes and takes the risk, but they'll take a lot of money for that risk. And how do they make that money? They'll, 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 you know, buy the risk at 75 cents on the dollar. And then when you do an IPO, uh, you know, you're selling it for high price and then they're making all the difference. So they're making a lot of money from these investors coming in, even at the IPO, right? That's why, that's why, for example, Facebook, when it uh, uh, launched, or, or you know, any company, it's at certain level. I think maybe it was like sixty, eighty dollars per share, and then it like went down to, to almost nothing. And that's 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 why you know people are um, uh, the the initial valuation is a little high, you know. And thankfully, the product was good, so it's it it it, it went <laughs> up to two hundred well. plus. Yeah, it's doing pretty well, specifically specifically that share. Uh, but but that's the IPO because there's a lot of intermediaries that are making a lot of money. You know, it's a very cumbersome process, and the investors are not seeing, uh, especially the LPs that that invested money in, in the beginning, are not not seeing that those good returns. So a lot of companies are realizing that that staying private is good, but they want liquidity. So I think that's why tokenization is really is really an amazing uh, solution that's in between. Yeah, it's pretty incredible just talking through all these concepts. If you were to predict what this industry is going to look like in the future, maybe if you want to give like one prediction that's a three to five year prediction, and then afterwards your 10 year prediction, what would you say the industry is going to look like at those different intervals in the future? I think in five years, every single real estate fund is going to be liquid in one way or the other. And uh, those that are not gonna be liquid are gonna stay behind. For private equity, it's, uh, it's tricky. I think only the companies that really have some tangible assets are gonna, are, are gonna go for, for liquidity because you know, users are gonna quickly realize that um, it's hard to, to do trade if you, uh, it's hard to do trade if you can evaluate something concretely. Um, in terms of funds and yeah, private equity funds and um, and real estate funds, commodity funds, they all will be tokenized. I think maybe 50% of them will be tokenized in five years and the majority in 10, unless there is a better technology and better way to do this that, you know, that, that we invent, which I never want to discount. Um, that is just so and, fascinating, that, that prediction. Yeah. So around in terms 50%. of volume though, yeah. In terms of in terms of volume, there's three hundred trillion dollars worth of real estate right now in the world, and only one percent of that is liquid. So the opportunity is tremendous, right? And the liquid real estate is really the public REITs that you see on stock exchanges, right? So we have ninety nine percent that is um, not tokenized. Obviously, not everything is going to be tokenized. Some, you know, village huts in, in Africa or, uh, you know, not, not even my apartment is probably not going to be tokenized unless I move into some sort of a, you know, a big project. Uh, so, so let's say that even 20%, 20% is, is reasonable to expect for, for tokenization. And, and that already gives us uh, $60 trillion. trillion. So I, I think that we're going to get to around a trillion in the next five years, and then sky's the limit. I hope within 10 years, we'll get to full full five or 10. What is your favorite book? So if we're, if we're talking about fiction, that would be A Catcher in the Rye, and that's kind of a, a place where, by J.D. Salinger, where like a young teenager realizes that the whole world is much crappier than he thought it would be. Um, so I don't, I really don't know why I like that book. And then, uh, but business wise, I really love pitch anything and, um, the the script by Oren Clough. I think they're any business person who's selling anything, their company or any, or, or a product should 
listen to that book at least i i do a lot of uh, audiobooks uh, and, and then i buy them yeah. yeah. I mean, you because it's you can do it while doing so many other things like when when you're driving, when you're just walking around, you can't like walk around. Yeah. Well, I guess you technically could walk around while reading a book, but yeah. it would look kind of silly. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly why I'm doing this, you know, why I'm running errands. Um, so so yeah, so and, and so Orange Cloth is fantastic. I definitely recommend. Orange Cloth? Yes. All right. Interesting what do you think it is? You mentioned that you like business books. Like yeah. I, I actually am uh, very, very similar in that regard. Whenever I'm listening to books or, or reading books, they're normally kind of surrounding business. So I'm, I'm wondering why you uh, choose to listen to or read business books instead of fiction. Um, a lot of fiction lately started to bore me. I feel like things are repeating themselves. I do have some uh, favorite authors um, that I that I would read when when I when I when I see them somewhere in the shop. And I, you know why? I actually think I have a better reason because I don't fly anymore. So every time I would fly, fly who's flying anywhere? For the oh, last six like months. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that yeah. makes sense. I mean, I, I don't remember what was, you know, back then, but for the last six months, usually I would fly twice a week, twice a month, sorry. I would get on the plane and I would go buy a, buy a bookshop, buy a book and read it on the plane. That doesn't happen anymore. So who has time or patience to sit down and read a book anymore, right? And enjoy yeah. it. So. <laughs> So, so I really need, sometimes I just put my phone in airplane mode, pretend I'm on airplane just to get some work done. So that's, uh, you know, I definitely miss those plane reading sessions. Um, so then you have, you were left with business books that you, you listen to, you know, in your audiobook while you're running errands. But, but really, you want to improve in what you do. You want to learn. You want, and you know, it's part, part of adult education um, to, to, to it, part of getting ahead, part of competition and ambition. Yeah. And also there's so many smart people, you know, I imagine myself sitting with Oren Clough, like him telling me his life story. So there, there's so many smart people that you want to learn from. Yeah. And there are also just so many topics too. Like, that's the other thing. I always feel like there's so much that I just don't know at, and there's so much information out there and there's only so much time. So like, yeah. oh, well, if I have a little bit of time here and it's either just going to be listening to music or I could be listening to this podcast about energy or, you know, oh, learning yeah. about blockchain or crypto. Great. Yeah. Right. William, so what's your favorite, uh, uh, let's say book or, or the recent, recent book that you read? Yeah. Well, Listen. there, there are a couple, I think that someone actually asked me this the other day. Um, but it just depends what the topic is. So I think one that's really interesting regarding technology and, uh, the, and potential future technologies was Homo Deus, a brief uh, history of tomorrow. I think that oh, that's nice. the exact name. Read it a little while ago, but that book was just fascinating. Uh, and kind of this this would take it down a whole nother rabbit hole, but it kind of made me start thinking about the world in a different way. So rather than like to take a step back, if someone first told me the concept of like simulation theory, I would have thought that it was the most crazy sort of theory that's ever been invented and it wouldn't make any sense for something like that to potentially be true. But then after reading this book, it kind of started to break things down more granular uh, in a more granular way to the point where I was thinking, okay, well, uh, there are a lot of similarities and the assumptions to a theory like that actually could make some sense. So that was one that really just changed my thinking. Um, definitely nice. would recommend it out. out there. Yeah. Yeah, I'll check that. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, are you a big movie person too, or are you more so into the audiobooks? Yeah, I don't watch movies so much. I watch documentaries. I love uh, watching documentaries. Um, you know, anything related to money, um, anything related to um, business and uh, sports. <laughs> what what sports was um, a recent documentary that you watched? Related to money. So I, I'm so bad with names, really bad with names. But there was a documentary about the doping scandal in Russia. It was called uh, Icarus. Yeah. Oh, that was recommended to me. I haven't seen it yet, though. 
Yeah. Oh my God. I love it so much. Well, I come from Ukraine originally, so I can definitely relate, but, but the most, I'm not going to spoil it, spoil it for you guys. Cause I think everybody should watch it. Cause it's just fascinating. Uh, what was super interesting to me is the, the main character and why and the psychological motivation of, you know, coming forward and doing certain things. And it reminds me of certain politicians like staying in power to avoid jail, for example. So it's kind of like a similar type of rhetoric and it's, 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 uh, it's powerful coming out publicly with something uh, to protect, you know, yourself as public is, 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 uh, is very interesting. So definitely, you know, documentaries that are famous are famous for a reason. So, uh, you know, they're usually, they're usually very good. Yeah. I like, I like uh, fiction movies that, that, you know, can be just advertised. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I have to go watch that. I actually, I'm the same way as you. I don't normally read like fiction books or anything like that. But uh, anytime I watch a movie or, or just something on Netflix, it's always just, it's so entertaining. Like even, even like those documentaries and anything, I, I just am absorbed into it. I feel like when I start watching it, I could watch it for hours and hours and hours, which is why I normally try and avoid watching uh too much Netflix or too much TV just because it, it just draws me in so quickly. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it's an escape mechanism, right? You want to, uh, to do something, your brain wants to switch off and, you know, you have so much around you and, uh, so many, uh, activities and impulses that you want to switch off. It's normal. Yeah. Do you do any meditation or anything like that to try and like calm down all the different thoughts that that might come up i used to i used to do a lot of meditation um i kind of recently got super busy i do yoga so like at the end of yoga there's a little bit of meditation there but thanks for reminding me i need to every day <laughs> i say to myself i need to get back to it uh, i need to get back to it and uh, there, there was all these series of like 30-day meditations uh, which was by Deepak, Cho by Deepak Chopra, which I really mm -hmm. loved. Uh, and, and yeah, I highly recommend anybody to do that. You know, it's kind of makes you more beyond the clarity. It just makes you more grateful and thankful and, you know, it really works. Definitely. Do you, do you meditate? Yeah, I was this, I, I used to do it a lot and then I stopped and then I started getting back into it. And it's just, every time I get back into it, I think, why did I ever stop doing it? And then I always think back that it's because it, it does take time though. It is like getting into routine, like going to the gym. Like that's another one where once you are going every single day or meditating every single day, it's really easy to stick to it, but stop a couple of days and then it just keeps getting put off. And then it's not even part of the routine anymore to do it. For sure. Yeah, definitely. It's all about routine. But, uh, you know, as entrepreneurs, it's kind of difficult to just be left with your thoughts, you know, uh, yeah. and disconnect. It's, uh, it's really difficult. Uh, for me, you know, uh, as a Jewish person, I have uh, Saturday, uh, and I'm not a deeply religious person, but make it a rule not to do any work for 24 hours. I mean, it doesn't include books, for example, um, but not, not any actual work. Um, so it's, it's really helpful. Um, you know, I work 24 seven, almost, you know, maybe 17, 18 hour days, the rest of the week, but then one day it's just complete disconnect, um, which is great. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, I wish, I wish I could learn to do this for half an hour a day. I think it would improve my, my life tremendously. If I could carry the same, you know, go, go for 18 hours and it take, or 16 hours and it take one hour and do nothing, you know, meditate, sports, you know, I do run, but then when you run, you still have, the, <laughs> yeah. have the thoughts going, you know? Yeah. Well, I think running that's actually, uh, so like this was way back, but like when I was in high school and we go on these long runs, I think that you actually do, especially if you're running by yourself, you get into that meditative uh, sort of yeah. state for a certain period of time. And even though the thoughts are still coming nonstop, it's almost like it, the, the same thing happens if you're just meditating, sitting down. It's almost sure, like sure. recognizing all those thoughts and then just letting them, you know, blow by with the wind. Yeah. But it well, is I'm not so good at the running. So that's why I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I get, when I get better, when I get, I'm trying to actually train to do like this relay, relay, uh, uh, run 
with a group with a group a Marani group on in the mountains in about a month and a half. Oh wow! So, What's the distance that you're trying to go? So each of us. So we're not professional. The professional is uh, running around 16 kilometers, maybe 20 kilometers each. I think, um, and I, I don't I don't know I don't remember anymore how to convert that into miles. Um, so we're gonna do around six to ten kilometers, which is basically you know maybe twice, right? If I do two parts, so so that's you know ten ten kilometers, about an hour. So two two different parts. Wow, yeah. and is that mostly uphill? Six miles, I think five miles. No, I mean it's it's different. Yeah, so it's going through nature, um, which is fun. And day and night, it's supposed to be like this amazing experience, right? So I've never done it. So it's the first time. I like I have a rule that I have to challenge myself, um, like at least once a week to do something that I that I'm afraid of, and like maybe like once a month to do something that I've never done. So this is this goes under the category of something I've never done. If you come to oh. me and you're like, um, I don't know. Do you want to uh, go and learn skateboarding? And I'm like, yeah, because it would go under the category. That's a great so attitude. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, I think that that's so great. You go and you try all these new things, like once a week yeah. and then once a month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Try to. And that also forces me to say yes. Right? So, yeah. yeah, sometimes, right? Sometimes. What are some of the crazy things that you've done that you might not have done because of because of like that attitude? So, um, I don't know, like last week there was an open mic <laughs> in, a, in a bar. And so like, I'm not a, not a, I'm not a singer. Like I know how to do, do it. And I, I can't sing, but not in front of the audience. So I probably would have never gone up. But then like, I said to myself, like, you're going to regret it because this is an opportunity. So you have to take it. And so, so I took it and it wasn't that horrible. Apparently it was okay, <laughs> but it was definitely frightening. Right. So I also started yeah. doing improv because of that. And maybe a few years back, I was in an improv group and um, you know, I, now when I go, I go on stage all the time, I do these, you know, I teach classes and I go to conferences. It wasn't always like that. And I sucked so much um in the beginning so bad uh, but you know i forced myself to go on stage over and over and over again so uh you know thousands of times until until it got it got better yeah definitely <laughs> well on that note i this has been an unbelievable amount of fun uh everything that you're doing with solid block in the space i think is just incredible really really useful for uh everyone in this industry and i'm sure that uh, it's going to continue to grow and be a really successful company. So thanks again for coming on before signing off. Is there any place online that everyone who's listening can connect with you? Is there a place online where they cannot connect with me? <laughs> they can, you know, uh, if you Google Yell Tamar, you'll see LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you know, whatever, whatever you guys uh, like to use. Um, and, uh, and I'll be happy to speak with anybody, you know, uh, get on a call, brainstorm, if you have ideas, if you have questions, um, I'd be happy to. And William, thank you so much for having me. It's really been fun for me as well. And I wish you lots of luck with whatever you guys are doing. You guys are doing great. I, the past, the podcast is great. So I keep doing the good work. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the SAS Mining Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and YouTube for the latest updates and previews of upcoming episodes. Full episodes and transcripts can be found on sasmining.com every Thursday. If you want to hear us interview a particular guest on a future episode, please reach out to us at podcast at sasmining.com.